You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Well, folks, uh, we have been talking about being stronger together in this season. And so we're talking about the art of one anothering. The word or the phrase one another occurs a lot in the Bible. It's really just one word in Greek, and it's a noun, but it's always connected to the sorts of things that we do, Uh, the way that we treat one another, the way that we live with one another, the way we forgive one another, the way we talk to and about one another. So in many ways, it takes on kind of a life of its own. We can talk about one anothering as something we learn to do better and better, like an art we progress in and practice and perfect over time. And so we're following this word in the New Testament and really trying to follow Jesus uh, by following this word, that we might become more like him, and we might live beautiful lives in that way. And so today we're talking about bearing one another's burdens. If you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be at verse 1. My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work, then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own loads. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, for some words from John Cleese. Seriously, though, we've heard a lot about extremism recently, a nastier, harsher atmosphere everywhere, more abuse and bother boy behavior, less friendliness and tolerance and respect for opponents. All right, but what we never hear about extremism is its advantages. Well, the biggest advantage of extremism is that it makes you feel good because it provides you with enemies. Let me explain. The great thing about having enemies is that you can pretend that all the badness in the whole world is in your enemies and all the goodness in the whole world is in you. Attractive, isn't it? So, if you have a lot of anger and resentment in you anyway, and you therefore enjoy abusing people, then you can pretend that you're only doing it because these enemies of yours are such very bad persons. And that if it wasn't for them, you'd actually be good-natured and courteous and rational all the time. So, if you want to feel good, become an extremist. Okay, now you have a choice. If you join the hard left, they'll give you their list of authorized enemies. Almost all kinds of authority, especially the police, the city, Americans, judges, multinational corporations, public schools, furriers, newspaper owners, fox hunters, generals, class traitors, and, of course, moderates. Or, if you'd rather be an extremist on the hard right, no problem, fine, you still get a lovely list of enemies, only they're different ones. Noisy minority groups, 
unions, Russia, weirdos, demonstrators, welfare sponges, meddlesome clergy, peaceniks, the BBC, strikers, social workers, communists, and of course, moderates and upstart actors. Now, once you're armed with one of these super lists of enemies, you can be as nasty as you like and yet feel your behaviors morally justified. So you can strut around uh, abusing people and telling them you could eat them for breakfast and still think of yourself as a champion of the truth. Uh, uh, you can treat people with abuse and still think of yourself as a champion of the truth. That's a pretty profound thing to say. It's hard to believe that wasn't written, you know, today, but rather 30 years ago in Britain. The accent is kind of a tip-off, and the fact that Americans are the enemies, apparently of liberals, uh, is a really interesting thing. But I think we recognize the kind of behavior he's talking about, and it turns out that's actually really old behavior. And what John Cleese calls extremism, uh, the New Testament actually just calls Phariseeism. Uh, Pharisees were people that the New Testament authors knew really well. Uh, these were religious people. They were righteous people. They were respectable people. But they had a tendency to think of their respectability and their righteousness in comparative terms. Right? I'm more righteous than... I'm more righteous than... And that's what makes me righteous. And Jesus is a really hard time and gives these guys a really hard time. And that's one of the reasons we as Christians have to be suspicious of it. But another reason is we know that it's exactly that kind of thinking that killed Jesus. It's exactly that kind of thinking that killed Jesus, and we don't want to crucify Christ again. And so we find ourselves in this strange position of having to listen to words of Jesus when he says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because we know that comparative righteousness always leads to self-righteousness. I suppose there's one exception, but almost always leads to self-righteousness. As long as you think, well, these people are worse than me and that's what makes me better, then I'm really, well, not judging myself by my own work, the way Paul tells me to. I'm judging myself by other people's work. And that makes me look pretty good, right? But the problem is those who think they are something, when they're actually nothing, deceive themselves. And we don't want to be people who are self-deceived. We don't want to be people who walk through the world with an us-and-them kind of mentality because we're called to bear one another's burdens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a book he wrote called Life Together, said, There is a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It is an impatient, inattentive kind of listening that despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak, and thus get rid of the other person. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face, that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in intercession into the face of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. And that's the kind of righteousness that you and I are interested in. Because our comparative righteousness is, is the exception. We compare ourselves to Jesus. And when you and I compare ourselves to Jesus, we discover that we are thoroughly unrighteous. That he's, he's great, and we're not so great. 
And the amazing thing about our relationship to Jesus is not only do we find that we are unrighteous, not only do we discover that we are well, nothing in the language of Paul, but that actually Jesus helps carry our load, that he helps bear our burden. And so as we follow Jesus and we recognize our unrighteousness, as we approach the world and other people that we disagree with with a serious kind of humility, we also know that Jesus has a way of making us righteous, of restoring us in a spirit of gentleness. Paul is advocating that we act toward one another in exactly the same way that Jesus has acted with us. And that means we need to stop judging ourselves by the work and the lives of others. There was a pastor friend of mine many years ago who said it's, it's like realizing there's a tape recorder hanging around your neck every day. And it hears not just what you say, but what you think. It's a magic tape recorder. And it hears what you say about how other people should drive, or how other people should talk, or how other people should forgive, or how other people should think about race, or how other people should think about the cops, or how other people should respect authority, how other people should live their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And then someday we will stand before God and he will just push play, and we will be judged by the standard that we have claimed to be holding others to. We want to judge ourselves accurately, says Paul, by our own work and not by the work of someone else. We do want to get better at our work. We recognize that we are responsible for ourselves, that we have to carry our own load. And yet we want to be people who bear one another's burdens. That's how we fill up the law of Christ. And so in this season where there are lots of different people with lots of different opinions who seem to be operating with enemies, there's this real challenge for us because we can tell, right? There are people over here who have a particular angle on the world. And we agree with a lot of what they say, but not every single thing that they say. And we recognize that the way they're talking, that basically puts us on the enemy list. That unless we are completely on board, we, we actually are enemies. We don't really get it. We're not really a part of the solution. We, we're not really participating the way that we need to. And there are people over here in exactly the same place. And it just feels easier, so much easier, to say, you know what, I just agree with everything you say because I don't want to be your enemy. And that's actually not what we're called to do. That's the kind of half-listening, the kind of not, no, not bearing one another's burdens that we're called to do. And so what do we do? How do we operate well with this kind of ethic, with this way of one anothering. In this season, it would probably be good to listen. Always a good posture for Christians today. To listen with, well, our whole hearts to what people are saying. That's what Bonhoeffer advocates, and I think it's worth doing. We're not going to be able to bear each other's burdens if we don't really understand the burden that people are carrying. And so it would be wise, maybe, if you have some African-American friends to listen to what they're saying, and to not assume that you know what they mean, but to really listen to what they're saying. And if you don't have any African-American friends or any minority friends, people of color, that might be worth paying attention to and finding some people to listen to in this season, so that maybe something that's foreign to you might become friend, and what's friend might even become family, that we might disagree with one another up close, because I'm not saying that in listening we, we agree with everything other people are saying. I'm only saying that we need to listen to one another. It would be good to listen, to maybe read great works written by brilliant African-American thinkers through time, to try and understand what you can't really understand, but you can get closer to. Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and so many other leaders and thinkers through time. Worth listening. Because if we listen, right, if what's foreign becomes friend, if what's friend becomes family, then we, we can learn to love one another well. 
We start to understand a burden. We can figure out how to help you carry it, shoulder that load alongside you. It doesn't necessarily make it less of a burden, but maybe it makes it a little easier to bear to know that you're not carrying it alone. Likewise, we want to listen in this season uh, to cops. If there's no cop in your life, it might be worth finding one to listen to, to hear about how they're feeling in this season, how the rhetoric has changed, how they, they're being judged by some of the worst people that they know. And again, if there's nobody in your life you could listen to like that, it really might be worth finding those people that you might allow their foreignness to become friend and their friendness to become family. We want to help shoulder those burdens to be people who operate like Jesus in that way. And we know that listening and loving are, are part of things, and we also know that voting is a part of things. It's one of the ways that we shoulder burdens in our society. It's a weird gift we're given as Americans. And I think it's become really clear in our time that voting is not only about the President of the United States and the Congress, that actually the people who affect our lives on a day-to-day -day basis are local politicians, the sort of people that generally we're pretty apathetic about when we come to the ballot box. I don't really care who's the mayor. I don't really care who's the city council. All I care about is the, the one thing. And that we wouldn't be single-issue voters, but that we'd be nuanced thinkers as we approach local politics. That we wouldn't just look at the D or the R after somebody's name, because that doesn't matter as much in local politics. We'd look at their track record and the way they think. Because now we suddenly know the name of the mayor of Minneapolis and city council people in Atlanta. These normal, ordinary people have become famous because these are the people who choose city budgets. These are the people who manage the cops. These are the people who appoint police chiefs. And we care about justice for people in our city. We really want that. And we care that our cops actually are treated really well, that they actually can be heroes, and that they're managed well in that way. And so we want to be people who help bear the burden in this way. But of course, those burdens go further and farther. If anything, this is a very burdensome season for people in America. You know people on your street who are lonely, people in your office who haven't seen anybody in a long time. Folks aren't coming to their house and they're not being invited over. They don't have this kind of community that we have. They don't have people checking in on them regularly. What does that need ask of us? How do we help shoulder those sorts of burdens? It's a hard thing to do, largely because people in America don't want their burdens to be carried. We've been teaching people for a long time that you're self-sufficient, that your load is your load, that it's really all up to you and you're all on your own. And maybe your family can help you carry things like that, but nobody else. That's, that's really, that's just for you to carry. And the strange thing about the church is we think that the family actually gets quite a bit bigger. The sort of people I, I have this kind of responsibility to extends far beyond the people who are related to me. When my wife and I moved into our neighborhood, we genuinely wanted to love our neighbors, and we thought we have a blank slate. We got a brand new house. Nobody knows us. We can really love our neighbors well. And it was really hard to do uh, because my neighbors didn't want to be loved. That's the truth. Uh, they didn't really want our help. We would offer to help do yard work, and they would say no. And we would offer food, and they'd say no. And we'd invite them into our homes, or we'd try to have conversations with them, and they'd just go inside and not really chat with us. And it was weird, and we realized it wasn't personal. This is just kind of the way they do their lives, in isolation. But in a time of the coronavirus, that isolation is going to be exacerbated and people are going to be a lot lonelier. And so we're working really hard to love our neighbors. And we found over time, by clawing out a relationship with some of these people, that we really are friends to them, that we're some of the only people 
who asked them about their lives, which is strange. David, uh, Henry David Thoreau used to say that the average person uh, is actually far more in trouble than you think they are, which I think is true. It's me paraphrasing. And I remember at one point working on my lawn in the front yard and trying to pull out a tree stump. And one of my neighbors offered his truck and offered to help. And I said, oh, no, thanks, just unthinkingly. And it suddenly occurred to me I was doing exactly what my neighbors had been doing to me, that I was living that same kind of like, well, I don't need help, but you, yeah, actually, no, I would love your help. Please come. I will, I will be vulnerable enough to let you help me carry this burden. One of the ways sometimes that we help other people carry a load is uh, we're vulnerable enough to let them help us. It establishes that relationship. Going from foreign to friend, from friend to family. And we have more of a relationship with that neighbor in mind because I was willing to be vulnerable in that way. We have uh, some friends that we know who went through a surgery recently in their family, and because of that, they can't go out to the grocery store. Coronavirus is a thing. And so we offered to go grocery shopping for them, and they turned us down. And then we insisted that we go grocery shopping for them. They said, absolutely, that sounds great. But they never gave us a day of what they wanted to buy. And so then we started harassing them with the offer of groceries just constantly bothering them until they finally let us in and said, yeah, this is actually what we need. And we went to the grocery store and we dropped it off for them. My wife and I were chatting about how strange it is, how rare it is for us to have the opportunity to follow Jesus by bearing one another's burdens because everyone in our society thinks that they can do it by themselves, even though we really weren't made to do things alone. And in the church, we know something that the rest of the world doesn't know, that that life works better with this kind of community. When foreign becomes friend, and friend becomes family. There was a Bible study in a church I was a part of at one point. It'd been going for about six months, and one of the couples dropped out of the Bible study, just all of a sudden. And the leader came to me and said, what's going on? I said, I don't know, man. You should probably call him and listen. He said, so, hey, why did you guys drop out? And they said, oh, you know, it just doesn't work with our schedule. Well, we changed the schedule for you. Oh, you know what? We just don't think it's going to work out for us. It's been working for the last six months. I feel like you're not telling me what's going on. You know, we can't afford childcare. That's why we're not coming. You know, that didn't occur to me. We don't have kids. It, I just, I don't know what it's like to live your life. That, that helps me. Um, what if we all just chipped in for childcare? It'd be a couple of bucks each. No, we couldn't ask you guys to do that. You're not asking us to do that. We're offering to do that. If you don't let us serve you in this very small way, how can we be the kind of church the book of Acts describes where, well, people were willing to just sell what they had and give it to other people because that's what it really looks like to do life in this radical, one-anothering kind of way, to bear one another's burdens in this strange kind of way. But it's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do because sometimes people think that they know it all. People think that they can do it all. People who really are nothing think that they're something and deceive themselves, Paul says. And so we find that we're kind of always in this process of offering to help carry a load for people, even though those people are actually pretty hard to serve. Now, Paul kicks off this whole section of Galatians by saying, if anyone is caught in a transgression, those of you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And the word for caught there is the word for like surprising an animal, right? They're cornered and afraid and ready to lash out in violence. And that's kind of the experience you have sometimes when people are caught in sin. And when folks in the community that you love and serve and are a part of, you sort of discover that they're actually pretty messy and they're actually pretty broken. 
maybe people in a guys group you're a part of are really dealing with some substance abuse issues, or maybe some people that you kind of know casually through the church actually seem to have a real problem with anger, especially toward their children, and it's uncomfortable and you don't really know what to do. Maybe you're dealing with people who seem to be talking really insensitively in a time that really requires great sensitivity for Christians, and you find suddenly that, that you're in this strange position of seeing a problem in someone's life and seeing a problem in someone's discipleship, and Paul says, don't be tempted. That's the end of verse 1, and you think, who's going to be tempted? Who sees somebody in sin and is tempted to do the same thing. But the temptation that Paul is talking about is not tempted to do what they're doing. He's saying, take care that you yourselves are not tempted to comparative righteousness. To a kind of righteousness that goes, that guy screwed up, man, I'm great. That guy's insensitive, man, that makes me really sensitive. Those people are bad at parenting, that makes me such a good parent. Those people are bad at loving their neighbors, man, I'm great at loving my neighbors. Watch out, Paul says. That's a temptation we're all going to experience all the time, and that's not what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. Self-righteousness will definitely stop you from helping someone shoulder a really difficult load. We come alongside people who screw up in a spirit of gentleness. But this is a really hard thing to do, because we don't like that people are messy, and because when you get up close with people and you really do life alongside people in community. When church is not something that you just tune in to watch periodically, but actually a community of people that you're really invested in and involved with, you discover that the church is actually full of a lot of people who really need a savior. They're really broken, really messy people, and that's uncomfortable for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the guy who I mentioned before, was a pastor in Germany in World War II. And he started an underground seminary, which I think is the most romantic, cool idea in the world. I know that that makes me a huge nerd, but I love the idea of training pastors right under the nose of Hitler. Like, we're going to stop the Nazis by, like, being Christians in really intense ways. So he starts this underground seminary, and I love it. But the book he wrote about that seminary is called Life Together. And it destroys any and all romance that you might have for that idea. He says, look, life in community is hard. And the person who loves their idea of community more than the reality of community, will destroy community. The person who loves the idea, the hypothetical, the, the best possible idea of the church, but not the reality, will ultimately destroy the church. And that's a strong tendency for those of us who read the Bible and fall in love with Jesus and go, oh man, I'm so messy and I'm so broken. And Look, there are all these Christians in this community. I can go to them and they will help me become really good at this. And we start to imagine that we're the only broken people. We're the only messy people. We're the only ones who have issues. And then you go close and you realize, oh, this is a really dysfunctional group of people. And Actually, my pastor is kind of a jerk. And I don't really know what to do with all of this. Because I was kind of hoping the church would be incredible. And it leads some people to say, you know what? I don't need the local church. I'm just going to hang out with my friends. And we're going to do life alongside each other. And we're going to call that the church. Because that's life in community. And I know people like this, and we'll chat and I'll say, that's not the church. And they'll go, no, that's, that's what the New Testament is talking about, though. It's, it's about people doing life together alongside people and, and, you know, really loving each other. And I go, yeah, but there's nobody in that group who isn't already your friend. No one that you're choosing to do life with that you wouldn't ordinarily choose to do life with. Jesus actually at one point says, if you love people who already love you, who cares? Like, everybody does that. That's, that's normal for people. Why, that doesn't make you a Christian or not a Christian. The amazing thing about the church is there's this group of people that doesn't belong together, that somehow has gone from foreign to friend to family, and the right and the left, with massively differing opinions, 
who are unable to deal with each other in the rest of the society go, yeah, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. Cops and criminals find themselves together in the church and go, yeah, you are my brother, you're my sister in Christ. The masked, the unmasked, the coronavirus denier and the coronavirus anxiety person find themselves in community saying, you are my brother, you are my sister. We're in community together. And that list goes on and on and on and on and on. We bear one another's burdens and often the burdens are the people themselves. And you realize actually that that the person you're looking at who seems so frustrating and so difficult for you to love sometimes, who just has so many issues and you're really not sure how to help you carry them, that's a person that Jesus thought was worth dying for. Who Jesus put on their back. That's the weight of the cross as he walks up the hill. It's you. It's me. And because Jesus takes that weight off of us, because he lifts the burden off of us, we're able to help him carry the cross. We're able to help him carry our brothers and sisters in Christ to bear one another's burdens. And that's how we fulfill the law of Christ. And the world, when they see it, they're blown away. In those random moments when the church just doesn't operate like everybody else, when people say, man, there's something really different about you guys. And I wish that was true in this time. And I think maybe our community can be like that in this time. They see it and they they take notice. Because it's amazing. There's this missions agency I'm I'm on the board of. And I, I got a note from one of our partners this week in India. And basically, there are migrants who are trying to get from one place to another in India because the trains have shut down because of coronavirus and borders have been closed and people have been stranded and quarantined. And there are sort of people who are working somewhere else who can't get back home. And there's just this train of migrants walking through town every day, walking hundreds, if not thousands of miles, just to try and get home. And a local church was looking at this, and some people were saying, yeah, we got to do something about this. And some people were saying... I mean, what can we really do? And those people aren't Christians. We don't owe them anything. And nobody else is going to help them. And there was this fierce kind of debate in the church. And they eventually just settled on the idea, people shouldn't have to walk like this. This just shouldn't be true. It's 110 degrees outside. Some of them don't have shoes. They clearly weren't planning for the journey. They're little kids. This shouldn't have to happen. And so some of the people, right, who had the really unpopular opinion saying, we aren't responsible for these folks are also, because they're in community, saying, yeah, you can use my car. Yeah, I'll help you drive. Yeah, I, I understand we're going to do this together as a community, and, and I'm on board with this. We want to bear their burden. They shouldn't have to walk. I agree. I'm not going to talk about the bigger societal issue. I just don't think this is right. We're going to do something about this. And so they just started driving people from one side of the country to the other. Trip after trip, day after day. These aren't wealthy people. Every mile is wear and tear on their car. No one's reimbursing them for gas. This costs them time and money. This costs them time away from their family. It costs them time away from the jobs. hurts them. But migrants shouldn't have to walk. And so their goal is 300 migrants a day. We can't save everybody, but we can save some of these people. 300 migrants a day shouldn't have to walk. And little by little, they're just doing something amazing. And their Hindu friends and neighbors, their Muslim friends and neighbors are saying, why? Why are you doing this? You're hurt by the coronavirus just as much as we are. This is dangerous for you the same way it's dangerous for us. And they go, they shouldn't have to walk. And they're bearing one another's burdens. And that's how they're filling up the law of Christ. That's what we do when we fill up the law of Christ. The book of Galatians has a lot to say about the law. And mostly it's negative. Paul really doesn't want you to think of following Jesus as something that involves a lot of rules. Because it's not. 
But all of a sudden in Galatians 6, we hear this idea of the law of Christ that hasn't been true. It's 30 times we've heard the word law mentioned in Galatians. And all of a sudden we hear the law of Christ, and it's this very different kind of law. Not one that makes me better than people who are not righteous, but one that involves me in the lives of the unrighteous. One that involves me in the lives of foreign people and invites them to become friend and my friends to become family. Paul, when he kicks off this whole section, does something he does all the time in the New Testament and nobody even notices. He calls us brothers and sisters. Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if any one of you is caught in a transgression. It's a point that the New Testament is constantly making you don't notice because it makes it so often and so casually that you and I are family. That we are family. We're family no matter what divides us because we have the Spirit of God. And that I owe you what I would owe my family members because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The law of Christ. That I owe you what I would owe my family members because we all have one Father and it's the God of the universe. And so we're brothers and sisters. We're children of God. And that changes the way we deal with one another. And that's part of the art of one another. And it, when you start to understand the gospel in this way, when you stop looking at other people's sins or other people's problems as things that somehow make your sins seem smaller, you really start to understand sin. And when you really start to understand sin, you really start to understand the gospel. When you really start to understand the gospel, it changes the way you live. Uh, one last story for you. There was... Uh, years ago, we were on a backpacking trip, my wife and I, with a college ministry we were a part of, and there were some 20-year-olds, and there were some kind of folks who were actually more like adults. Uh, they have jobs and lives and things. And we were on this backpacking trip in a remote section of British Columbia. So it was just us, and there was no one around for miles, no society, no nobody. Uh, we were just in the wilderness together, and it was hard, and it was really fun. We were on an adventure, carrying... 40, 80-pound packs on our back, and we were all responsible for our own stuff, but we were also sharing things like food and tents and other things that we needed to share amongst the group. As we walked, we would go through really difficult places that were slippery with ice. We were on glaciers or climbing over boulders or slipping on tree roots and really steep terrain. And every now and again, we'd get lost, and it would be really hard and really painful, and we managed to make it to sort of a mountain peak below the mountain peak. And it was this sort of summit before the summit. We could take off our packs and kind of be unburdened for a little while. And in the morning, we were going to summit the mountain all by ourselves, no packs, and then come back down and grab our weight and come back down the mountain. And people were having a really good time and just sort of enjoying the fact that they didn't have any burdens to carry. And a couple of the guys, the older guys, uh, who were more like adults, uh, were having this weird box jump contest, which is something that happens when people are just giddy with not having to do things. And they were jumping on boulders as best they could. And one of the guys tried something pretty impossible and almost made it. And his feet hit the edge of a granite boulder and he slid down, shearing off the skin between his ankle and his knees on both legs, opening things wide up. You could see muscle, you could see bone. The guys around him were horrified. They carried him over. We didn't really have the ability to help him. It was band-aids and people pinching his flesh together and trying to figure out if we could get a helicopter in the middle of the wilderness. He was badly, badly injured. And we finally got him stabilized. He's dealing with shock, and we've covered him up with a lot of like blankets and coats. I walked away with a couple of the leaders and a couple of the guides, and we started talking about our options because there was no helicopter. We were going to have to find a way to get him down the mountain. And he was going to have to walk with his really messed up legs. And we just weren't sure how it was going to be accomplished. And they were saying, you know, the truth is we can't really do anything before tomorrow. So honestly, we could still summit. He's going to have to walk and he's going to move a lot slower. Some of us could go up 
and maybe one of the guides could stay and we could start walking down the mountain with him. And then we could still accomplish the thing we've all wanted. I mean, why should we ruin everyone's trip? And we went back and forth on all this stuff. And I said, I don't think we should do that. I think we should go down the mountain with him. I think we just, we, we, we say this is, this is the situation now and we have to be a team and kind of pull together. And one of the leaders who'd been really quiet the whole time said, no, I think we let them choose. And I said, I don't think we should let them choose. I think we choose. I think we become the bad guys and they blame us for the fact that we're not some. We take some of the heat off of this guy. And she said, yeah, I hear you. But I think we let them choose because they could decide to forgive him. And so we came back to the camp and we decided to let them choose. And they all started talking together. And we said, okay, so here's the deal. He, we can't save him. We're going to have to walk down the mountain together. And that obviously compromises the whole summiting plan. But we're still able to summit if, if you want to or if some of us want to. And we just want to hear kind of where you guys are at. And there was this long silence. And people started to volunteer. You know what? I'll, I'll stay with him at the camp. Everybody else should summit. I mean, that's, we came all this way. I'll stay with him and I'll do whatever. No, you know what? I'll, can I stay with you? And like, we'll, we'll just cheer him up and hang out with him. And that's, that's what we'll do together. Can I carry his pack? Can we, can we build a stretcher? Can I help carry him down the mountain? Can I add weight to my life? Can I help bear his burdens? Unanimously, this group of people just suddenly decided that they were going to carry this guy and everything that he had, and they didn't care that he kind of destroyed the trip in a very real way, just by being stupid. And he was really moved by the thing. And, and I sat with him, and we talked about it late into the night. We talked about Jesus, who he'd kind of understood and probably would have called himself a Christian before this, but... We were talking, he said, I just, I feel so bad that I've ruined everyone's trip. And I go, I don't think they think you've ruined their trip. He said, yeah, but it's just, I'm just not used to needing people's help. I'm, I'm used to being the one who can help. He said, yeah, man, that's, that's part of the gospel that we get to help you. What you're experiencing really is, is what we call grace. And we started talking about Jesus. I know Jesus bears our burdens. Uh, that when we were stupid enough to do the things that we've done, he said, yeah, I'll carry that for you. Yeah, I'll carry you. Right down this mountain. And it's unbelievable how quick he made that decision, and unbelievable how selfless he was in it. And that's why we become people who help carry one another's burdens. Because we've been carried by Jesus Christ. And, and so we know that that's a way that other people get to experience the gospel when we help bear one another's burdens. That guy would say that his favorite moment of the trip was when he badly injured himself and destroyed the trip. Afterward, as we were talking, we finally got down the mountain, even with all of the shin-shattering pain as he walked step after step down a mountain, even as other people were carrying things, even as he kept having to deal with the sort of the shame and the pain his decision had caused a lot of different people. He said, I think that was my favorite part of the trip because I think I really understood community and what it means to believe in the grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, if we bear one another's burdens, we can show people what community looks like. And we can help people to understand the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you.